together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we've warned you. Do you realize if Jeff had been hit a little harder, the charge would have been murder? Pronounced murder? <laughs> wow. Last week, we continued our deep dive into the films of the Marx Brothers, and this week we're going to bring the dive to its final stop, the last four films starring at least three of the four Marx Brothers, The Declining Years. It's a tale that involves circus sideshows, premature retirements, wacky Nazi war criminals, and that time the brothers made movies just to pay off one of their gambling debts. Not a joke. On with the show! Elephant in My Pajamas, The Marx Brothers on Film, Part 3. Where the Marx Brothers thrived in their five Paramount Pictures films, arguably reaching its zenith with 1933's transgressive masterpiece Duck Soup, they had a spottier track record elsewhere. Their champion at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Irvin Thalberg, died during production of their seventh overall film, A Day at the Races, and upon returning to MGM after producing Room Service in 1938, quickly began producing content at a rate of one film per year. I say content because my esteem for these later films is lukewarm at best. Thalberg had imposed a story structure on the brothers with the two films that he oversaw, A Day at the Races and A Night at the Opera, and while it worked for those particular films, without that guiding hand, an authoritative one, ironic considering the circumstances, Marx Brothers movies became very ordinary and homogenized, manifesting as vanilla, proper, conservative. It was not unlike the Abbott and Costello movies that Universal Pictures was producing. What if X and Y go here? What if X and Y did this? Etc. Etc. At a certain point, these movies reach peak saturation. Content for the sake of content. Not because the individual films had a merit or a sense of accomplishment, but because the personalities still had some favor with audiences, and they could be easily plugged into something in development. Plus, with Chico's gambling debts, the piano player was often cash-strapped and cajoled his brothers into making the occasional film to avoid going completely broke. Our first movie up for discussion this week is the ultimate example of what if X and Y were in Z. In this case, X and Y were the Marx Brothers, and Z was the circus. That's right. It's 1939's At the Circus. If you please, Mr. Carter. What is it? Can I have a month off next August? 
What for? Well, you see, I just got a word from my lawyer. He got me a divorce. And one month every year, I win at the custody of my wife's parents. Perhaps you'll think I'm forward. But last night, when I first saw you... And slammed the door in my face. I realized that you're the man I've been dreaming of. What do you eat before you go to bed? Pardon me, madam, but here are the seating arrangements for your final approval. Oh, no, Whitcomb. Judge Chenock will sit on my left hand. And you will sit on my right hand. How will you eat? Through a tube? Okay, see if you can follow me on this. There's a bad guy who wants to take over a traveling circus owned by a good guy named Jeff Wilson who has hidden $10,000 in a gorilla's cage. The bad guy sends his goons, a strongman and a sideshow dwarf, to steal the money, which they do. Wilson's friend and employee, played by Chico, reaches a lawyer named J. Cheever Loophole, Groucho, to investigate the matter, which he probably should have hired a detective to do, but that's a can of worms I'm not going to open. Mr. Loophole believes the bad guy's girlfriend has stashed the stolen money, which she has, but can't outsmart her, so instead he cons Wilson's rich aunt, the great Margaret Dumont, into paying $10,000 for a performance by a famous French conductor, when in reality she's repaying the lost cash. As the search for the money, the backstage intrigue, and the whole French conductor grift storylines begin to coalesce into a farcical climax, the bad guy suddenly decides that he doesn't want the circus anymore, and sends his goons to burn it down instead, and it's up to the Marx Brothers, and the only witness to the original crime, the gorilla, to save the day. It's about 15 pounds of plot in a three-pound bag, with needless subplots weighing down what should be a premise with basic appeal. In a better timeline where Paramount Pictures didn't try to cheat the Marx Brothers out of gross earnings, I can imagine this premise working. Cut to the absolute bone around 70 or so minutes, and just delivering on the promise of what craziness the Marxes could get into in a circus. It's kinda anathema to the brothers' original purpose, acting as the agents of chaos in a cold-blooded, stiff upper lip environment. But the idea of agents of chaos in the most surreal possible environment could possibly work. If anything, it could at least be a novelty. That movie where they really swung for the fences, and even if the bat didn't make contact with the ball, at least you could feel the effort behind the swing. At the Circus is occasionally amusing in fits and starts, but it contains not nearly enough sight gags and wordplay to measure up to a top-shelf Marx production, or even mid-shelf for that matter. There is far too much padding, with too many scenes of young lovers making goo-goo eyes at each other and singing long, boring tort songs to each other. I call it the coconuts disease, where the producers think anyone goes to a Marx Brothers movie for anyone with a different last name. They don't. It's a snooze. You don't sell a series of movies on come see X and Y do Z if the audience is hoping for a traditional narrative structure. There's not a single person who walked out of Duck Soup in 1933 and said, you know what, that was okay, but it didn't have enough romance. Or, funny movie guys, but we didn't learn anything about the hierarchical structure of Fredonia. There are some fun moments, for sure more fun than the previous movie, Room Service, but mostly it feels like a missed opportunity with the occasional killer line. There must be some way of getting that money without getting in trouble with the Hayes office. How many sheep do you have to count before you fall asleep? One? Uh, you're an insomaniac. Not for nothing, but I've officially stolen insomaniac for my own personal use. 
The most notable aspect of At the Circus and the next two films we're going to discuss is that the great Buster Keaton wrote gags for all three productions, his efforts ultimately going uncredited. Like the Marxes, Keaton was on the decline during this time, albeit in a far more desperate way, a far cry from his heyday starring in and directing silent masterpieces like The General and Sherlock Jr. Apparently, his brand of physical comedy and set-piece construction wasn't jibing well with the signature Marx Brothers style, and it's unclear exactly which of Keaton's gags ended up in the final film, if any did. Having seen all the sights there are to see in the circus, it's time to put X and Y in a Z. You know who X and Y are, but what is Z? A Western. It's 1940s Go West. <laughs> Nobody can outshoot two gun quail. Boys, sweep them out of the gutter. It's just like a movie. If any trouble starts, we'll telephone for help. Telephone? This is 1870. Don Amici hasn't invented a telephone yet. Say, if you want to stay healthy, I'd keep shy, Little Bell. She's Red Baxter's girl. Red Baxter? Who's Red Baxter? We'll settle this right now. Where's Red Baxter? Here! Where? Here! Where? Here! You should have been home, the pot of gold call. Last week, when Frank Dietz stopped by, we talked about how MGM executive Irving Thalberg decided to test the material in his Marx Brothers movies by having the trio take certain material on the road and test it before a live audience. That way they could nail the pacing and prune any gags or punchlines that didn't land. In a way, it was hearkening back to the Marx's origin on the stage, where they performed the Coconuts and Animal Crackers for months on Broadway before Paramount adapted the shows for film. After the Marxes briefly left MGM when Thalberg passed away, going to make room service at RKO and returned without the circus, the brothers spent a few weeks on tour trying out the script for Go West in front of a live audience. I would be lying if I said you could tell. The MGM movies are, for the most part, brilliant minds on autopilot, but Go West is no more polished or funnier than At the Circus, perhaps a little less hectically paced, though. It's a Western comedy that doesn't really work as either a functional Western or a consistently uproarious comedy. The plot is as bare-bones as you can get while also having at least two moments of incident about some deed to a worthless gulch, a gulch that will be decimated to construct a new railroad, making whoever holds this formerly worthless land obscenely rich, but whatever, I don't care. Even when a bit connects, there's an uneasy feeling. Like a scene where Groucho lists off all the ways that white coloners have fucked over Native Americans, a scene in which practically every other actor is a white person in brownface, a bit of irony that was probably lost on all those involved. Are you insinuating that the white man is not the Indian's friend? Huh. Who swindled you out of Manhattan Island for $24? White man. Who turned you into wood and stood you in front of a cigar store? White man. Who put your head in a nickel and then took the nickel away? Slot machine. It isn't until the big climactic chase aboard a runaway train that the movie shifts into third gear, but by that point, you're probably like me, half asleep. And I am a lifetime insomaniac. It's not easy to make me sleepy, but whatever. We move on to the next film in the Marx Brothers canon, 1941's The Big Store. I have just hired Mr. Flywheel as a floor walker. Well, Martha, we have enough floor walkers. Please. However, if you desire, what experience have you had in a department store? I was a shoplifter for three years. <laughs> That's a fine. Let there be wine. And women. And the song. And women. 
and uh, caviar. And women. I think about the optimal appeal of the Marx Brothers, it's not just sticking it to authority, it's the idea that no one in the world they enter finds them funny. There should never be greeted by anything other than a withering stare. No amusement, no humoring, no pity. Just pure, cold indifference. But in the big store, there are multiple characters who crack a wry grin that says, Oh you, you silly, silly men, what am I gonna do about you knuckleheads? The big store is so generic and indicative of the vanilla MGM years that it feels like they remade half of At the Circus and half of Go West and set it in a less quirky environment. The same romantic subplots involving characters no one cares about are there. Similarly, Chico and Harpo hire a detective played by Groucho, and if you'll recall, Groucho was a lawyer behaving like a detective in At the Circus. It has something to do with a popular singer being willed half-ownership in a department store by his departed uncle, marked for death by the owner of the other half of the store, the popular singer being played by someone other than the Marxes, so who cares? It would have been a good role for Zeppo back in the day, but say la vie. For all the muddier elements of the big store, it has at least three things that deserve note. 1. Groucho and Margaret Dumont have plenty of scenes together with their particular combative sexual chemistry. This film is the closest the two ever come to hooking up, and it makes me wonder what the movies could have been like if they actually pulled that particular trigger. Because I can't speak for anyone else, but I am rooting for them to start playing a game of tonsil hockey anytime they share the screen. How can I keep from telling the world of you and your beauty, and my feelings about you? She walks in beauty like the night, of cloudless climes and starry skies. Why, that's Byron. He was thinking of you when he wrote it. About halfway through the film, Chico, a small Jewish man adopting a stereotypical Italian affectation, actually meets a real Italian person who naturally speaks just like he does. It's a moment that I'm frankly amazed hadn't happened in any of the brothers' previous ten films, especially considered how meta the brothers tended to be. That's why I'm looking for something that no look like a bed. Well, you're gonna worry no more. I got just the thing you want. Don't get a fresh and a microphone how I talk. I know microphone. I'm the same nationality like you. If you was born in Naples, or sure, is it you was? Or sure. Yes, I was too. <laughs> and three. The big store might be the only time in which Chico's piano playing actually not only retained my interest, but also felt plot motivated. Usually when Chico starts tinkling the ivories, it grinds the narrative propulsion to a halt, like the movie went out for a cigarette break and plans to return within five minutes. Every one of these numbers ends and the only appropriate reaction is, yep, Chico really can play that piano. But in this film, Chico needs to think of something to distract the patrons of the titular department store, so he stops at the nearest piano and starts playing it with Harpo which might be the only time that the two performed an instrumental duet with the other, and Chico was clearly just enjoying playing piano with his brother, peacocking and showing off a bit, and the routine actually reaches a crescendo, as opposed to, well, that's over. <laughs> so good job, Marx Brothers. You finally got the obligatory Chico number to have some bearing on the story. It only took you ten years.
MGM based their entire marketing hook for the big store around some big news. I have a most important announcement to make. Most important. Now, just calm yourselves. We're not going to take up a collection. Years ago, probably before most of you started to attend the theater, Sarah Bernhardt made a farewell appearance. In fact, she made 14 farewell appearances. She made them each year. And each year, it was more profitable. Each time, the public flocked to the theater to bid farewell to the divine Sarah. Now, after, lo, these many years, there is to be another farewell. The Marx Brothers are retiring from the silver screen. That's right, folks. We're on our way. That's all right, folks. But where do we go from here? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. And that had indeed been the plan in 1941. This actually was the big goodbye. But Chico, as we have addressed a couple times before, was as inveterate a gambler as they come. When strapped for cash, he eventually pushed his brothers to return to the big screen two more times, albeit without the backing of MGM, starting with 1946's A Night in Casablanca. Oh, you had to be scared. You know, three managers before you died from eating poison food? This food doesn't like any more poison than any other hotel food. Give me that. Oh, no, boss, look. You've got to have somebody to test the food. What do you need is a guinea pig. You eat the guinea pig. I'll stick to this. Give me I my steak. I don't steak. mean a real guinea pig. I mean a human guinea pig. I don't want to eat any kind of a guinea pig. I want my meal. Nah, there's a human guinea pig. He looks like a pig, but he doesn't look human. What we have here is a confused movie. Is it a parody of the 1942 classic Casablanca? Just a silly movie set in the same location during the same time period that's otherwise unrelated? A combination of the two? The film is mostly tiresome, with a far more plot than necessary, although the brothers haven't lost an ounce of chemistry. I would lose interest for 10, 15 minutes at a time, but then I would witness the occasional decent scene. There's a moment where Groucho and the female lead blow cigar smoke in each other's faces that was pretty cute. <coughs> this is like living in Pittsburgh, if you can call that living. Harpo and Chico have a great three to four minute scene where Harpo plays charades to communicate something that he witnessed, as Harpo never speaks, and in fact turned down a substantial sum to speak his first on-screen word in this film, and if the entire film was that cute and light on its feet, we would be in business, but instead, it's the scene that proves the rule. The most interesting thing about the film is a backstage legend, one that was ultimately disproved. Around the time of A Night in Casablanca's release, Groucho, trying to use the publicity machine to his film's advantage, alleged that Warner Brothers threatened to sue the producers, believing the film's title infringed on their property. And if you can own the name of an actual location, sure, go ahead. Groucho then alleged that he would sue the studio for having the word brothers in their name as the Marxes used it first. He wrote several open letters to the studio, all of which were picked up by the newspapers of the day. In reality, when the film began development, it was a direct parody of Casablanca, and Warner Brothers was curious as to what the film entailed, so they sent a formal inquiry to get further details, Groucho pounced, and the script was ultimately changed to follow a more original narrative. The ultimate irony in all of this is that, guess who owns the negative rights to A Night in Casablanca now? That's right, Warner Brothers. With the release of A Night in Casablanca in 1946, the brothers went their separate ways once again. Groucho set his sights on radio and began an iconic gig as the host of a quiz show, You Bet Your Life, 
which was eventually simulcast on television and lasted a total of 14 years. The brothers would appear together in one more film, their final screen appearance as a cohesive unit, 1949's Love Happy. Love Happy is significant in the Marx Brothers canon for reasons that have nothing to do with its actual content. The film was envisioned as a solo Harpo movie, with a story from the mute member of the trio and a screenplay by animation legend and frequent Bob Hope director Frank Tashlin. But when Chico's financial troubles bubbled up again, he hitched a ride to Harpo's project and also convinced Groucho to appear, as United Artists wouldn't finance a film with just two Marx Brothers. One, no problem, but two, unacceptable. As such, it's the first movie where Harpo really takes center stage, beyond having scenes in previous films where he does nothing but play the harp for three minutes. As a Marx Brothers movie, it doesn't really count, since the three spend so little time together on screen, to the point that Groucho considered A Night in Casablanca to be the true final appearance of the trio, and it's easy to see why. It's about as uninspiring as a final movie could be, creatively stagnant, half-hearted, contractually obligated. You could note some interesting trivia, like this is the only movie in which Groucho's mustache is real and not grease paint, he grew it out after starting to appear on television, and that the film marks the first film appearance of Marilyn Monroe, who gets the introducing credit, but otherwise, it's a slog. An incoherent narrative that requires Groucho to actually explain the plot directly to camera multiple times as a way of patching story holes. Yeesh. What a way to go out. While the Marx Brothers' popularity had waned somewhat in the immediate aftermath of them retiring from films as a group, there were still attempts to get the band back together throughout the years. In the late 50s, Chico and Harpo began an episodic television series called Deputy Seraph, about two blundering angels tasked with possessing different humans each week, but the studio pulled the plug when it discovered that Chico had arteriosclerosis, which made him uninsurable. In 1960, legendary director Billy Wilder began prepping a film called A Day at the UN, which would unleash Mark's chaos on the United Nations, only for the film to fall apart with Harpo's declining health and cancelled altogether when Chico died the following year. Their films were rediscovered during the tumultuous 1960s as the baby boomers felt inspired by their anarchic anti-establishment tendencies, although only Groucho and Zeppo lived to see it. Suddenly, a couple of esoteric comedians from a bygone age were hip once more, relevant to a new generation for roasting snobs and thumbing their noses at authority. Their surging popularity encouraged Universal, who owned the first five Paramount Pictures films, to set about restoring the original versions of Animal Crackers and Monkey Business after the Hays Code required scenes to be cut. In 1974, Groucho received an Honorary Academy Award, an honor he shared with the departed Harpo and Chico and the very much alive but not present Zeppo. After years of degrading health, Groucho passed away in 1977 at the age of 86, and Zeppo followed him two years later. The kings of orchestrated anarchy are gone. Long live the kings. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content, and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. 
This Friday, we're diving deep into the early 90s Zucker Brothers-produced Marx Brothers homage, Brain Donors. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. As I get older and deep into mid-age, said the 35-year-old who definitely won't make it to 70, I'm finally developing a taste for the pure auteur. Filmmakers who deliver something very specific to cinema, where the joy lies in seeing how they will adapt their aesthetic to the material. In thinking of Brian De Palma, the word musical comedy, which is not a word, it's actually two, is a weird fit for his particular idiosyncrasies, from his love of split diopter shots to his penchant for split screens. That said, this week's recommendation is in fact a De Palma musical, 1974's Phantom of the Paradise. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. The 70s were an interesting time for musicals. Kicking off with Bob Fosse's Cabaret in 72, Rocky Horror Picture Show and Tommy in 75, and ending with Fosse's All That Jazz in 79. The genre was taking on the properties of postmodernism that was a far cry from the winky camp of AIP's beach party subgenre in the early mid-60s. Phantom of the Paradise is both a self-aware romp with killer songs and a legitimate horror comedy, one that might feel like an outlier, but is just as much a De Palma movie as Sisters or Blowout, or even Snake Eyes, for that matter. I only wish I had been inspired to watch it much sooner. Phantom of the Paradise is currently streaming on Shudder, but you should be like me and help keep physical media alive by picking up the Scream Factory Blu-ray. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as The Coolness Chronicles, and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. This is a 1,000% independent nonprofit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Also, the Patreon helps. Have any questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this season? Contact me on Twitter at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also, check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of our wonderful artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Bobby L., Michael A., Ian C., T-Flax, Ian M., Kitty K., Kelly B., The Vern, Michael H., Mary M., Bill M., Christopher H., Christopher J., Tracy R., and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care. Bye.
They're not writing that kind of stuff anymore. Dorn, that's the end.